I'm Robert Gross, uh, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Connecticut and the author of The Transcendentalists and Their World. The book, to The Transcendentalists and Their World, looks at the town of Concord, Massachusetts, which was home to Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. And it became identified with the ideas of transcendentalism that those authors profess. This is the 400th episode of the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Robert Gross wrote a book during the nation's bicentennial called The Minutemen and Their World, a study of Concord, Massachusetts, during the American Revolution. It became a perennial bestseller. Today, in a new book, Professor Gross returns to Concord and explores the meaning of another crucial moment in the American story, the rise of transcendentalism. How had Concord changed from the revolution of the 1770s to the time of the transcendentalist movement in the 1820s and 1830s? I think the best way to approach this is to think about, first, how we would describe the American Revolution in Concord in New England, and then how we would describe uh, Concord and transcendentalism. So let me start there. The American Revolution in Concord was really driven by the British invasion of the rights of self-government. And with the Intolerable Acts, the Charter of Massachusetts was was revoked, and the royal government um, barred town meetings except once a year to elect municipal officers. Um, That movement then was a fight for collective governance, for collective self-rule. And it really had in mind not so much individual liberty as the liberties of, of the colony as a whole, to be, uh, liberties that, in the minds of people at the time, had been really established by their Puritan forefathers uh, for a distinctive kind of colony. Now jump ahead. We think of transcendentalism as not so bound up with collectives, but with individuals turning on the right to intellectual self-culture to self-reliance. And so I was really interested in how it could be that a community that stood for the fight for collective self-rule could later become identified with a drive for intellectual independence, not political independence. Well, is there a kind of a great man theory at work here? Was it because Ralph Waldo Emerson moved to Concord and he's the one that sort of pioneered or uh, promoted uh, transcendentalism? I would say, actually, that Emerson is reacting to and observing, as well as experiencing, the forces of the time. Uh, The first half of the book, part one of the Transcendentalists in Their World, traces a gradual erosion of the world, interdependent world that had constituted the world of the founding fathers of Concord the founding fathers of Puritans and their revolutionary descendants. We might think of it this way. John Adams once described a quartet of institutions that he saw as uh, essential to the New England way. They constituted town meeting governance, uh, the the religious establishment, the ideal of one town, one church, where everyone worshipped together. He had in mind the militia, where every able-bodied man from 16 to 
uh, 50 or 60, was obliged to turn out for militia training. Finally, he had in mind common schools paid for by taxes, where all the children, could, um, mostly the boys, could be educated. I would add a fifth, which is um, the village tavern, where people got together to share the news and forge bonds of community. Well, you take that world. It wasn't as inclusive as people profess, but it represented an ideal of interdependence. What you see after the American Revolution, and especially from the 1820s on, is people are pulling apart from that world of interdependence. One key thing is a split in the church in the mid-1820s when dissenters say they're tired of the dry sermons and lack of spirituality of the established minister, and they begin to worship on their own. By 1834, Massachusetts has disestablished religion, and now your choice of a faith is a personal choice. So that's one. Secondly, um, more and more men are restive after um, the War of 1812 has been over for a decade. They're restive with the militia obligation, and people stop attending, and they have to pay fines. By 1840, Massachusetts has eliminated um, obligatory militia training. Common schools, early 1820s, the elite of the town sets up their own private academy where they think their kids can get better education and won't be bullied by some of the working uh, families' children. So you no longer have common schools in the same way. Uh, Town government remains uh, town meeting government. But um, in, by the um, early 1830s, um, an anti-Masonic movement has developed, which then merges with Jacksonian democracy to bring about um, intre- you know, intensely divided political parties so that nobody's coming together anymore uh, for local governance. In fact, even the local issues of the day are now tied to political party conflicts. And finally, the temperance movement attacks the village taverns. Um, they shouldn't be meeting places. People should not drink ardent spirits. So, and then finally, within the economy, a lot of the cooperative practices of the past, uh, husking bees and the like, um, go into disfavor as inefficient and wasteful. And um, reformers begin to say, don't do what your ancestors did. Pay attention to the latest knowledge. Do the best practices of the day. And if there's work that has to be done, do it yourself or hire the work. You don't haggle in village stores anymore. There's enough cash around from banknotes. You know, you can have single prices, pay the bill. Um, And you don't need to seal a bargain with a drink. Mm -hmm. So in all these ways, uh, what had been at least uh, imagined as an interdependent social order is framed, and Emerson moves to Concord as these changes are reaching a critical point and a crisis. You, you describe some of the issues that drove Concord residents into what I believe you call mutually suspicious enclaves. Um, it, it's common today to talk about how we're such a divided country. Was Concord in the 1820s also similarly uh, divided? The 1820s, actually from about 1825 to 1833, were actually a politically quiescent period. Conquered in the period of uh, Jeffersonian Republican versus Federalist competition, had been intensely divided. 
uh, and it, it was what we would call today a battleground town. You couldn't predict from one election to the next which way it would go. Um, by, in fact, by the first part of the 1820s, Concord was mostly a Republican town, not a Federalist one. Then, in 1825, everybody disarms politically, and the town is, in the context of national politics, a national Republican town. John Quincy Adams, highly popular, Jackson getting hardly any votes, and little competition on the state level or for state representatives. But what you have during this period of, of essentially no party or one party rule is an elite that has its own way to promote a lot of social and economic changes. And what you see is that in the absence of political competition, but with a lot of social changes going on as uh, the elite often drives the separation from the common round of life. You see, as people begin to wonder who's making decisions in this town, who's making decisions in the state. For a long time, the local newspaper is controlled by some of the wealthiest, the most powerful men in town, and it plays down dissent. Then in 1833, after Andrew Jackson has been reelected and inaugurated, a crack appears in the National Republican Party, and you have an anti-Masonic uprising which targets some of the most powerful figures in Concord. Uh, the minister of the town, Ezra Ripley, who's been established and in the uh, pulpit since 1778, and John Kyes, who's the most powerful Republic, originally a Republican office holder. They come under attack, as do many other Masons, for, I think, making familiar decisions, but outside of public view. You know, you'll recall that a lot of the Jacksonian movement was driven by accusations that the caucus wanted to control everything and not the people. This is a kind of equivalent to the caucus and the uprising against it. If I could uh, circle back to uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson again, he chose to go to Concord. Why did he do that? Okay, so... Emerson is the step-grandson of Concord's minister, Ezra Ripley, whom I've just mentioned. Ripley um, presided over the pulpit in a kind of commanding way with a vision of community that he was going to hold together. He thought of the people of Concord as my people in a proprietary sense. His wife was the widow of Ralph Waldo Emerson's grandfather, the Reverend William Emerson, who had been a patriot preacher in Concord and died on the expedition to Ticonderoga when he was accompanying the troops as a chaplain. Ripley married the widow and um, moved into the manse, now called the old manse in Concord. And so Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, periodically visited there to see his step-grandfather and, and grandmother. Emerson grew up in Boston. His father, Minister William Emerson, um, and he was a, very, a liberal minister who would be seen as an advanced guard of Unitarianism. His, Emerson's father died when he was young, and the boy um, was one of um, a number of children that, that the widow had to raise, and she did so by keeping boarding houses, moving from one place to another, I guess, when the rent got too high and she found a better, a better cheaper place. Emerson did not, in a sense, have a one stable home. 
between the boarding houses, his college dorms, and places he lived uh, after he graduated college, um, he was peripatetic. And in a sense, like many increasing numbers of Yankees in the early republic, on the move with no settled place. When he comes to Concord in 1834, this is after he has been a minister of the Second Church in Boston, been married, seen his wife, uh, young wife die, and then he resigns the ministry out of um, reservations regarding uh, the rituals he has to preside over us, goes to Europe, and then comes back. And where's he going to go? He goes to Concord, where his mother is keeping uh, um, house for the Reverend Ezra Ripley. But by March of 1835, Emerson has decided he'll settle in Concord. I say in the book, he goes to Concord, because actually he had no place else to go. Was he a supporter of what was happening in Concord? I get the impression that he was, at least at the uh, outset, and maybe in comparing him to Thoreau. And But what was happening in Concord, I mean, they, they had uh, starting factories, the railroad was, was coming there, and so forth. Emerson was in some ways enthusiastic about technological progress and economic growth because he saw those um, advances as the result of mind discerning the secrets of nature and harnessing those secrets to human purposes. But in his book, Nature, published in 1836 and seen as a kind of early expression of transcendentalism, in, in nature, he says there, there's a ladder of uses of nature, and the material economic uses are on a lower um, step of the ladder than the highest uses, which are for spiritual purposes, to see the beauty of nature, to understand the truths of the whole creation. So Emerson both uh, could be enthusiastic about the economic changes, but then decry that the economic changes um, sustained materialism that was at odds with the highest purposes of the natural order. So he eventually maybe turned against some of these technologically progressive ideas? He, he didn't just turn against them as seek to inspire people time and again to rise to the highest uh, ideas. The key for him, and also for Thoreau, is that human beings had turned away from the notion that, as he put it in 1837, that a shining social prosperity was the end of man. Instead, he, he held the view that the modern mind teaches that the nation exists for the individual, for the guardianship and education of every man. And in fact, his was a fundamental principle that the individual is the starting point in our understanding of the world and of society and the economy and politics. And that, that the aim of, of every society should be to foster the flowering of the individual, not um, and that every child born is something new under the sun, and that um, we should celebrate that. Um, and not, you know, as he would say, in his own time, people did what they do all the time today. As soon as you see a newborn child, you start figuring out, how's that child going to serve society? How's the kid going to fit in? In his mind, that was the wrong way. Trust that the child will develop its divine possibilities. 
and that'll that child will figure out how to serve society. And Emerson was a great believer in the individual, right? Right. Yeah, and he's actually one way to understand this is to contrast Emerson's view with that of his step grandfather, Ezra Ripley. Ripley's central value was community. He once said in a sermon, "Who could live alone and independent?" Who but some disgusted hermit or half-crazy enthusiast will say to society, I have no need of thee. I'm under no obligation to my fellow men. Ripley also said, every member of the community is obliged to seek and promote the public good. Emerson is really setting himself against that view by saying, essentially, every um, individual is obliged to discover his or her own divine potential and to cultivate it and realize it. When did the word transcendentalism enter the language or when did people start calling uh, this uh, philosophy that? The term is probably first used by Elizabeth Palmer Peabody in in the mid-1820s. She was um, uh, one of the earliest to embrace uh, German idealism and the British interpreters and, and advocates, Coleridge and Carlyle, of German idealism. And um, in, in my view, as I lay out in the book, the ideal of transcendentalism starts as, re- as a religious movement. And it gains a hearing in New England, uh, initially with readers like like Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, but publicly in the early uh, 1830s, 1832, 33, 34. And I asked the question in the book, um, not why does transcendentalism get a hearing, but why does it get a hearing in Massachusetts in those years in the 1830s? So what is religion? It's not just a group of people gathering together. It's a divine spirit that everyone shares in. And it Religion changes just like everything else in society. Hmm. So the transcendentalist ideal is meant to appeal to people who are divided over many different temporal aspects of religion and win them over by saying, this is a faith designed for world and social change. How did uh, Emerson uh, meet and then interact with uh, Henry David Thoreau? Emerson moves into Concord in 1834 in the fall, decides to settle there in 1835. At that point, Henry David Thoreau is still a student um, at Harvard College who is still being known on the books as David Henry Thoreau, his birth name. He doesn't reverse it uh, and insist on being called Henry David until around the late 1830s, around 1839-40. So... Thoreau graduates from Harvard and at the end of August 1837, moves back to Concord where he's going to be the village grammar school master. Emerson is now living in Concord and they get to know each other in that fall. And um, Emerson is immediately charmed by Thoreau, by the irreverence of his, um, of his thinking, by the wit of his talk. Uh, Thoreau has read Emerson's book, Nature, the, the spring before 1837, really been captured by the way Emerson talks about nature. And the two of them start taking walks together in Concord, 
especially going out to Walden Pond. Uh, Emerson is so excited about Thoreau, he starts referring to him as my good man, Henry Thoreau. Um, he writes to Thomas Carlyle and says, when you come to America, I want to introduce you to the man of Concord, Henry Thoreau. Um, and so they begin um, sharing ideas, talking all the time. Thoreau is so taken with Emerson that to his former classmates at Harvard, they say, he now is imitating his every gesture. His tone of voice sounds exactly the same. One classmate of, of Thoreau's comes out to Concord and, and sees Thoreau and Emerson together. He says, if I close my eyes, I can't tell who's speaking. I wanted to ask you this, and it certainly is an awkward question. Uh, today, we're more familiar with transcendental meditation than transcendentalism. Is there any connection between the two? Perhaps in the sense of imagining one, that we all have a spirit within us of divinity. And two, that we ought to um, seek to make that spirit of divinity a kind of um, guide for our lives. Uh, and with transcendental meditation, a kind of discipline for our lives. Mm. In that sense, you could say that. And maybe in a broader sense in that when I was describing for you how transcendentalism comes to express um, what's seen as a spirit of divinity, to, to identify that spirit of divinity and cultivate it within, we might say that in, in transcendentalists like Emerson see all the religions of the world as having this notion of a divine spirit in common. That was uh, the beginning of what we might call the notion of world religions, that they all have a, a, a common basis. Transcendental meditation might share in that by way of a kind of movement from India, uh, from Hinduism and Buddhism into world religions as a way of thinking about the world. What happened to the transcendentalism of the 1800s? Is it, did it peter out or did people still have people adopted these ideas and continue? I would say that in some ways transcendentalism in its own time was popular among young people who were restive with the world they were coming of age into, who, who didn't want to be imposed upon by the older customs and constraints of their parents and were discovering a much wider set of possibilities for themselves. But for the most part, the fascination with transcendentalism was a passing phenomenon in that young people finally wanted to um, figure out their roles in society and not just apart from society. On the other hand, transcendentalism, with its affirmation that every one of us shares a common divinity, that we're all brought together by sharing in our, each of us with our own part in something, a larger whole, uh, that gets summed up in my terms. Every child born is something new under the sun. There's an infinite potential that's the um, task of parents and schools um, and society to foster. I think that's what we believe today in the United States and throughout the Western and perhaps much of the whole world, 
that we want to see that happen. Uh, in that sense, transcendentalism, I would say, is triumph. So, too, um, has the implication of the faith in the divine spirit. That is, it's democratic. That Every child is born equal in infinite possibility, and society ought to foster that. And that, in fact, all the artificial hierarchies and inequalities of society get in the way of our realization of what each of us has inherited by virtue of our own birth. I think all those are very much ideas bound up with what we might call, in a non-political way, a liberal outlook of the individual serving community. Is Concord, Massachusetts still an important place? It is a mecca for many people to come to Concord, to go to Walden Pond, to walk around Walden, and you know, feel themselves somehow connected to Henry David Thoreau. Um, it's certainly a place where hundreds of thousands of people come to visit the National Park and see the sites um, of the first battles of the American Revolution on April 19, 1775. Uh, it's also now a pretty prosperous suburb of Boston, um, and it stands out by still having a central village and also uh, uh, what was once a factory village in the west part of town um, as um, landmarks on the landscape. So if you come out here, you see a place that in some important ways has real continuities with the look of the mid-19th century. I was uh, impressed by how Emerson spread his ideas and, and made a living. And, and, and he wasn't the only one, but traveling by coach and rail, giving lectures around the country. Yeah, and actually, so this is the key to why I think the ideas of individualism were so crucial for him. When he came of age, he goes to Harvard Divinity School and he's ordained as a minister. And when he, as a minister, he's preaching for a congregation as its spokesperson. And um, he is not entirely free to say everything he thinks because he has to try to represent a, a community and, and subsume differences uh, in, in ideas among the congregation. He's unhappy with the rituals of, of congregationalism, and he says he can't carry them out in um, conscience. So he resigns from the ministry, and he will hire himself out for, for close to a decade as a freelance preacher, but one without actual obligations to any congregation. When the Lycia movement develops in the early 1830s, he's eager to make a career as a public speaker. And his early talks, he's always sponsored by a local lyceum or in Boston, a society for the diffusion of useful knowledge. In effect, he's got people giving him an imprimatur, a seal of approval, saying, we bring you this speaker, R.W. Emerson, and we endorse that he's someone you should hear. In 1837, he decides, no, I'm going to go out on my own. And instead of relying on anybody's sponsorship, he gives his own lectures and he announces that he's going to give a series in the Boston newspaper. He hires a hall. He hires a man to 
do the lighting and, and, and uh, take care of the building the day he gives his lecture. He has tickets printed up and sold by the booksellers. In effect, he sits in Concord writing lectures and then he goes to Boston to market them as an individual in a way analogous to the farmers of Concord, bringing their, making, producing their, their, their goods in, Boston, in Concord and taking them to market in Boston. And when he goes out on his own in 1837 for the very first time in a series he calls The Philosophy of Modern History, precisely on his own for the first time, he makes the individual and individualism the center of his understanding. Robert Gross is author of The Transcendentalists and Their World. Professor Gross is an emeritus professor at the University of Connecticut. Help support the Historian's Podcast by going to our GoFundMe campaign. You can find the link to GoFundMe right here on our homepage, bobcudmore.com. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.